All right. So we're going to be in the book of Second John tonight. Second John, chapter one. Right? There's only one chapter in Second John. A little test there. Make sure everyone's paying attention. Second John, verses one through thirteen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again, Lord, for your word. We pray that your spirit would, as the psalmist said, open our eyes to behold the wonderful truths from your law, or that we would know you, Lord, and that we would know your ways, and that, um, Lord, as Jesus obeyed your commandments, Father, that we would do the same. Pray that your spirit would move and sanctify us, Lord, by your word. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So spinoffs right now are all the rage on TV and in theaters, especially in the galaxy far, far away, right? We all know. In the last couple of years, Disney, Disney, Star Wars has produced a number of spinoff movies focusing the audiences on specific characters and events that are seen in the larger Star Wars movies. We've seen Rogue One, Solo, Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan, and Coming Soon, Endor, right? Andor. So there's, there's a lot of these different spin-off series movies that are coming out. I'm hoping for a Wookiee series. Pr- primarily because it'll be a good homeschool curriculum, right? You know, the kids can read the subtitles on there. and right? Learning occurred that day. No, it's just a joke. So Second John, while it's technically not a spin-off of the Gospel of John, it does have some similarities of a spin-off. You see, 2 John focuses on truth, and truth is found a lot in the Gospel of John that we're studying on Sunday mornings. You see, the New King James Version version uses the word truth 110 times in the New Testament. Of these 110 times, the Apostle John uses the word 46 times, over half the time. So yes, he's the Apostle of love, but he's also the Apostle of truth. And in the Gospel of John, he uses the word 26 times in that one gospel. Now here's just a snapshot of John's focus on truth in the gospel of John. We're told that Jesus, the word, is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he who does the truth comes to the light, and those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. John the Baptist bore witness of the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in his word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus told the Jews that they weren't following the truth, but rather they were following their father, the devil, who did not stand in the truth because there was no truth in him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus told his disciples the truth. It was to their advantage that they go away, because if you went away, the Holy Spirit would come. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who is both in the believer and with the believer. The Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, and he would testify of Jesus. We're told when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide the believer into all truth. And then Jesus prayed that God would sanctify believers by his truth, his word, his truth. Jesus sanctified himself so that those who follow him may be sanctified in the truth. Now I'll give you one more. Jesus is having a dialogue with Pilate, and John's the only one who records these specific words. We're told in John 18, 37 and 38, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I'm a king, and for this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? 
You see, Pilate wouldn't have known truth if it was staring at him right in the face. And truth was looking at Pilate right in the face. Jesus was truth and embodied, right? He, he was the embodiment of truth. He was truth. Everything he taught was true because he revealed the Father to man. Now, Pilate could have known the truth that day, but rather he chose to reject it. He chose to resist the truth. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. We're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, truth can be known, but man chooses not to follow after the truth, but rather they choose to suppress it, to put it down, to put it away, because they don't want to be convicted by their sin. They're without excuse, the Bible says. Now, the Holy Spirit brought to John's remembrance this idea of truth in his gospel. He uses themes of light and darkness, but also he uses the theme of truth. And the book of 2 John focuses on truth. You see, John's going to take this concept of truth that he expounded, that the believers would have no doubt known because the gospel of John was written, and, they, and he would have taken that, that, that concept of truth and applied it to the believer's life in the church age and said, okay, here's the truth that you learned from Jesus in your salvation. Now, here's how you apply it in your life, and here's how it affects you as you walk with Jesus each day. You see, John, in this small epistle, is going to teach us that the truth binds believers in love. It's the source of our obedience. It communicates our blessings. It reveals how we love like Christ. It's our standard of faith and practice, and it's the means to the fullness of joy. This book's all about truth that John is expounding to us. So look at verse 1. We see that truth binds the believer in love. John says to the, to the elder, or excuse me, the elder, to the elect lady and her children. And so John begins this letter as most first century letters did, naming the author and the recipients that were going to receive the letter. John calls himself the elder, which could refer to his age. You see, if John was, was 30 years old during the ministry of Jesus, at this point he would be around 90 years old at this point. So he was the elder, right, at this point. Which is amazing to me because God still had a lot of work for John to do. John would write Third John. He would also write the book of Revelation. He would be exiled to the island of Patmos where he would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which shows us that age has really nothing to do with serving God. God used young people, he used middle-aged people, and he uses older people. And so this could be a, a focus of John. The term the elder could also refer to John's position as an elder or an overseer in the church. Peter was an elder and an apostle like John. And one of the aspects of being an elder in the New Testament was they were to shepherd the flock of God which is among them, meaning that they were to feed, lead, and protect the flock of God. Now, who were the recipients? We're told here that they are the elect lady and her children. Now, there's two general views held on who this could be. Some say that the that this was a literal family, a woman and her children, and maybe even the church met in, in their home. And so this epistle would come to minister to this lady and her children and maybe even the believers. This phrase could also be looked at symbolically as a way to refer to the church. So the lady would be the church, and then the children, the born ones, would be those Believers that the church leadership was to minister to and to watch over. They, had the, the, they were to protect and, 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 and minister to them. This seems to fit Peter's reference to believers in 1 Peter 5.13. Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, 
and so does my uh, my uh, does Mark my son. And so we don't have to pick sides tonight, right? Um, but they both apply. This could refer to the church in general. This could refer to a specific family, or this could refer to an individual. And so God is able to use all these things to minister to us. Now, the word elect is used twice in this letter. And the term elect is a positional blessing that we have in Christ. Angels are called elect. That is those angels that serve God. Now, the elect are those that are connected with God's eternal plan, which God foreknew and planned. And believers who come to faith in the gospel are placed in Christ in, by the Spirit, we're baptized into the body of Christ, and therefore we, we become connected with God's eternal plan, this plan that God chose to, to work out. The believer is therefore a partaker of the blessings and promises that God foreknew and planned for those who would be in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You see, but while God plans salvation, uh, the blessings and glory for those that he foreknew he didn't determine who would be in Christ and who would not be in Christ. And so God planned salvation for those in Christ, but he didn't determine who would be in Christ and who would not be in Christ. The Bible teaches that the gospel goes out to all mankind and that God has given us grace to be able to respond. And when the believer believes, then they're placed in Christ, realizing that we're part of this plan that God has had for all the ages. God works out his will through his providence, and as we see throughout Scripture, God works out his providence in accordance with man's will. As Dr. Norman Geiser says, God's providence and salvation, man is chosen but free. That's how the, the term elect here could be used. Now, in the rest of verse 1, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. So John brings us back to his theme here, which the theme is truth. And within these first couple of verses, he's going to use this word five times to really set our focus on what he's talking about. Now, here's a question. What is truth? That's what Pilate asked. And, and in what way did Pilate ask the question? We don't know. Was he being sarcastic? Was he mocking? Was he serious? Uh, we don't know. I guess we'll find out when, when we get to John 18 on Sunday morning, right? But, but you know, but he, you know he, he asked the question. Now, truth in general is that which corresponds with reality. That's what it is. Truth is telling it like it is. Truth is that which lines up with the facts. So that's what truth is. And we know that based on our judicial system, right? We, we want people to tell the truth, and it's that which lines up with the facts. Now, truth is absolute, and truth is undeniable, right? Absolute means it's true for all people at all places at all times. And it's undeniable because you cannot deny truth without affirming it. People say, all all truth is relative. Well, is that an absolutely true statement that all truth is relative, right? It sounds like a true statement to me. Oftentimes people say, well, Christians, you know, they're so narrow-minded. We should be, you know, we should believe all truth is true, everybody, right? Well, the question is, that's narrow-minded because they say that, you know, only they're right and, and, and everybody who believes in absolute truth is wrong. So a person can't deny absolute truth without affirming it in the same breath. As like, as like Norman Geiser says, it's like saying I can't speak a word in English. You just, you, you just said it in English, right? And so you, you can't deny it. Now, John's focus is not truth philosophically or the concept of truth, the first principles, but he's talking about the truth that he saw and heard from the life of Jesus. It's the truth. You see, God established the concept of truth, and, give it, and he's given us the ability to be able to know truth 
because God wanted to communicate his truth to us, the truth that saves, the truth that gives us the ability to know God and to walk with him. This truth was passed on from Jesus to the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, and they fulfilled the Great Commission. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. He said, I want you to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them all things that I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. And that's what the apostles did. They taught the apostles' doctrine, which was the teachings of Christ. And they went out and they made disciples, and then God raised up prophets, and they had revelation to expound on the teachings of Christ and to give us the New Testament. And that's what John's talking about here. And by the time Jude wrote, as we saw last week, the faith was once and for all delivered to the saints by the end of the 60s A.D. So we had the gospel, which would never change, the gospel of grace, And also we have the foundational doctrines, the teachings of the Bible that make that gospel possible. And that's the faith in the truth that John's talking about. But it's important to note that the truth also focuses not not so much on what we know, but on how we live also. You see, the truth that John talks about is a life-changing truth. Yes, we know the truth and we defend it and we abide in it. But John says this truth is in us and it surrounds us and it should affect everything that we do. It should make us people of love, as we'll see. It's a life-changing truth. That's what Paul said in Romans 6. He says, you know, I I rejoice that you received the the doctrine that I preach, meaning that it delivered you from a slavery of sin and made you a servant of righteousness. That's the power of the truth in a believer's life. John, John teaches us that the truth is not just something believed, It's something that transforms. And we see that at the end of verse 1. Yes, we will make it through the whole epistle, right? Uh, The the end of verse 1, John here says that he loved these believers in the truth. Why? Because he knew the truth. And so John loved in truth because he knew the truth. And John says, and if everybody else knows the truth, they're going to love you just like I love you. Because truth produces a response. It produces love in a believer's heart to follow after Jesus. In the same way for you and I as a believer. You see, truth is what binds the Christian fellowship together. It's the basis of our fellowship. It's the basis of our faith. The church is not organized because we have the same personalities, same interests or nationality or ethnicity or hobbies. No, the, the, the church is organized because we're surrounded around the truth and because we love God's word and we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus and God's truth, we then love one another. Think about the disciples. The Lord picked a bunch of different guys to be his disciples. He had Matthew the tax collector, who was a sellout to the Roman Empire, and, he had, and then he had Simon the zealot, right? And, I'm, and I wonder if Matthew was ever worried about that knife that maybe Simon the zealot at one time carried. But the Lord took these two guys and he put them in the same group and says, you're my disciples. I want you to show everybody how much I love you and, and, you know, and the love that you have for one another. And that's what the Lord does for the church. He takes people from different backgrounds and, you know, just a diversity, uh, uh, you know, of people. And God places us into one body and he says, all right, function as my body in love. Now, we need to remember that the basis of our fellowship is truth and love because in doing that, it'll help us keep the main things the main things. It'll help our relationship, our, our interactions, because we realize, hey, we're here to serve a purpose that's greater than ourselves. I'm not here to serve my own purpose or to get my own way. I'm here to serve Jesus and his truth. And because of that, I want to make make sure that this place, this body, is a place where a non-believer 
who's in darkness, who doesn't know the truth, can come in and hear the truth and, and be saved. Second, in verse 2, we see the truth is a source of our obedience. John goes on and says, Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. The word because points to the love and the fellowship that he just talked about in verse 1. You see, the truth in us, and that's with us, is the source of power that we have for our obedience in Jesus. It's the source that we have to love and to be able to minister to others. What a contrast to the realm that we were saved out of, right? John, in a sense, uses truth as a realm. It's in us. It's, it's with us forever. It's, it's this realm that we exist in as, as a believer. But think about the realm that the Lord saved us out of, right? A realm of selfishness, of sin, of being consumed by self and getting our own way, right? That's, that's the flesh. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. And now the Lord transforms us from the inside out, and he puts us in a group of people who love truth, and we learn to you know, serve in that realm of truth. We can do this because, first of all, as John says, truth is in us. You remember the spirit of truth that Jesus promised? He lives in us. Also, the word is truth. Christ, his word, dwells in us, and he transforms us in, in, in works. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So John's saying, hey, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And the Holy Spirit will lead you. That's the spirit that, that God has. Now, of course, God has raised up pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So it's not a contradiction of what Paul taught in his letters. Yes, God has raised up pastors and teachers to teach and to equip the saints. But what John's talking about is we have the Holy Spirit of truth in us who gives us power to keep the law and to live. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. He says, we're not on, no longer under the letter of the law. We now serve God in the spirit. And what that means is that God's spirit lives in us, and he's, he's the one who's going to give us power to keep the law and the desire to keep the law. And, and that's what he's saying. He will lead us in the truth. He will sanctify us day by day. Second, the truth is with us forever. He's with us. He, the spirit leads us and guides us. He surrounds us. He, he never leaves us as orphans. He's with us forever. Now, the believer is not to isolate or to hide in a bubble because we're now in the realm of truth. Right? We were once in this realm of darkness, of, of false hopes and of sin, but now we're saved and we're in this realm of truth. But we're not to isolate in our own little bubble. Rather, we're to infiltrate the world because God has given us a mission to preach the truth to the world. And this is exactly what Jesus did, and this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. Listen to what John says or Jesus, John records Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And so Jesus came to infiltrate this world as an ambassador of truth. That was his focus, his ministry. That's what he told Pilate. He says, I'm a king, yes, and my kingdom is based upon truth. 
And this is why I've come, not to do my own will, but to do the Father's will. In the same way, that's what God has called you and I to do. We are in this realm of truth, but we have it so we can infiltrate the world and to be able to preach Christ and the truth that he's given us in his word. Verse 3, we see that truth communicates our blessings. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So the blessings that we have in this salvation are known and experienced in God's truth and love. It's through the scriptures that we learn about grace, mercy, and peace. And notice John says they're available to us right now in Christ. Often when you read these blessings in different epistles, they're spoken of as like something to seek after and to pray for. But John says they're available to you right now. They're, they'll be with you from God the Father. And so they're, they're available to us today as a believer. You see, grace is getting what you don't deserve. And the believer, we've received a lot of what we don't deserve. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places because we're in Christ. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So we've gotten what we don't deserve, grace, but God hasn't given us what we really deserve. And the reason why God hasn't given us what we deserve is because Jesus came as our great high priest and he offered himself as a propitiation, that is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against sin. And because Jesus has taken our place, we can now receive God's mercy because he's paid the price for us. And peace is a result of knowing grace and mercy. Peace is that inner rest that you can have in your heart and your conscience, understanding that God is not angry with you anymore, that he loves you, and that he's not ready to strike you down, right? He, he loves us. He's forgiven us. We're in Christ. He loves us as much as he loves Jesus. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus, and we're in Christ. Guilt is something that the unbeliever cannot deny. They can't deny truth, but they also can't deny guilt. That's a good question to ask somebody. What do you do with your guilt? And a lot of times people try to forget it. They try to drown it out. They try to, you know, come up with a lie like evolution to, to figure out how to get rid of God because maybe if I can just get rid of God, I don't have to feel guilt anymore because then there's no God, so therefore I'm not, I'm not guilty. But people have guilt and they feel it, right? But the Bible deals with, with our guilt in Christ. The Bible says God has placed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sins no more. That means he chooses not to hold our sins against us and remember our sins against us. That this guilt that we have because of our sin, because of our flesh, God has removed it. And we don't live under that guilt. We live under grace. That's why we stand in grace. And John says all these things come through God's truth and love. It's, it's what Christ came to communicate to us in his word. Fourth in verses 46, truth reveals how we love like Christ. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. So verse 4 actually begins the actual body of the letter. And the actual letter consists of two main points. First, the believers were to continue to walk in truth by keeping God's commandments, which is the command to love. And second, believers were to stay away from false teachers, those that had rejected who Christ was, specifically that he came in the flesh. But John tells us the reason why he wrote was not from a, a, you know, a, an idea that they were failing or messing up in any way. No, John wrote out of joy 
he actually commended these believers. He says, hey, I ran into some of these children and they were walking in truth. Whether he received a report or whether they came to him, these believers were, were living out their faith and it made John rejoice because John loved the truth. And so he rejoiced when they heard that they were walking in truth. I'm told that the word um, found is actually the word eureka. Eureka, right? And that's what, so John, John was excited about this, that, that these believers were walking in truth. Now, the phrase walking in truth speaks of lifestyle, right? It speaks not of a casual stroll or one-time walk, but a, it's a lifestyle, one of practicing what the Bible teaches. And John commended these believers for doing that. But he goes on to, continue, uh, to encourage them to continue in it because it's possible for us to become apathetic, right, or to leave these things behind or even to be deceived. And so John wants to continue to teach them to abide in this truth, to press forward in it. Verse 5, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So John now is going to plead with these believers. Yes, he's an apostle. He had the authority to command them, but he's taken the role of a pastor as an elder, someone who has uh, both wisdom as, as an elder, but also as a pastor to come alongside of these sheep and to encourage them to continue to walk in the truth. And these believers were to follow the command that the Lord had given them. This command was not a new revelation that God was given John. It was one that's been around from the beginning, since Christ. It was what Christ taught to the apostles, and the apostles taught it to the believers. And so this was not a new commandment. It was one that they knew. And the command was that they were to love one another. Verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, that, you, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And so John anticipates the question, well, what is love, right? You, you tell us to love one another, well, what does that mean? And John says, well, let me tell you what it means to love one another. You see, because we use the word love for a lot of things, and no doubt they use the word love for many different things in that day as well. We love certain sports, right? We love certain cars. We love, you know, ice cream, like at Cold Stone, they have the love it size type of thing, right? So there's a lot of different things that we love. But the Bible defines love for us, and Jesus defined define it for the believers. In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, a new, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, God had commanded believers to love since the beginning because God is love, right? It's part of his moral character. Since God is love, it's part of his moral law. And, and God in the law told Israel that they were to love their neighbor. And so what does Jesus mean that he was giving them a new commandment? Because it was always a commandment that the believer loves. This wasn't a new commandment, but this was a new application of the commandment. You see, yes, believers were always to love their neighbors, but Jesus gave them a new way to apply it and a new reason to apply it. The new commandment was that we are to love others as he has loved us. That's the commandment. Yes, you can just love your neighbor, but Jesus says, it doesn't really go far enough. I want you to love your neighbor, others, as I have loved you. That's the commandment. And why should you do that? It's because when all see you loving in this way, they're going to know that you're my disciples. 
they're going to say, wow, they act like Jesus. They're Christians. They're Christ-like um, in that way. Now, John takes this idea of love, and he, as McGee would say, he puts it where the rubber meets the road, right? In his letter of First John, he talks a lot about love. We all know John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we need to believe that, but then apply 1 John three sixteen to our life because it tells us how we're to respond in light of that love. John says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall, and shall assure our hearts before him. And so John says, if we believe the truth, if we're walking in the truth, well, then there's going to be a love that comes from our life. And not just a love that we think about or that it's a feeling, but it's a practical love. It's indeed in truth. It will work its way out through the believer's life in, in, in practical ways as we minister one to another as a body, right? Lifting up those who are weak, ministering to those who are in need. And that's John's concept of truth, that he's commanding these believers. He said, listen, here's the command I'm giving you. And they had First John already. So he, he's really emphasizing this, um, this truth to them. Love indeed and truth. Now, fifth, in verses 7 to 11, the truth is our standard of faith and practice. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so John reminds us that truth and love go together. And John was willing to, to call these false teachers out because it was going to protect these believers. Love is not blind, but it calls for discernment even among false teachings and false teachers. John was writing, as I said, around 90 to 95 AD. And so this shows us that just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 13, the great counter of Satan was going on. And Jesus predicted that. He says, hey, the world that we live in is going to be like wheats and tares. God is going to scatter his seed, his saints throughout the world. But the enemy is going to come along too, and he's going to scatter tares throughout the world. And they're going to grow up together with you. And sometimes it's going to be hard to tell the two apart, but at the end of the age, they're going to be separated, right? And this countersowing was going on just as Jesus predicted. There was these false teachers. And John, in his first letter, says that they were once thought to be among them, but we knew that they weren't among them because they left the truth and they abandoned the church and the faith and they were out teaching these false uh, teachings. John calls them imposters. They were deceivers. They claimed to be from God, but yet they were misleading people into error, seducing them by different philosophies. He said they were antichrist. Now, there is the antichrist who's coming in the future, but these guys were like the antichrist in the sense that they had the spirit of antichrist. The antichrist is going to come on the scene empowered by Satan in the tribulation, and he's going to seek to turn the world away from Jesus, and he's going to seek to put himself in the place of Jesus. And that's what these false teachers were doing. They were teaching something that was anti-Jesus, something that was against the truth that the Lord had established to his apostles. Now, what was this specific teaching? John says that they, they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. 
And he said, any teacher that does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is this deceiver. Now, there's two possibilities. Some say that maybe they taught that Jesus didn't have a real body, that he was like a phantom, right? And that it looked like a real body, but it really wasn't because, you know, matter is evil and spirit is good. And so Jesus being spirit couldn't have a, a real physical body. Others say, well, maybe they had the idea that the Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, and then he left him right before he went to the cross. But John said, either way, if anyone teaches anything like this, then they're a false teacher. You're to reject them. The Bible teaches that Jesus is both God and man, fully God and fully man, that God took a human nature along his divine nature through the Virgin Mary, and he he died and had a physical resurrection, and he remains in heaven as the God-man to come back in a literal glorified body at his second coming. Verse 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Look after yourself implies care and protection. It's like a parent or a guardian who loves their children and is going to watch over them because of danger. Or maybe someone has entrusted their kids to you to watch over them. You're not just going to let them play in the street. Like, go ahead, I'll be over here, you know, type of thing. Uh, no, you're going to watch over them. You're going to look after yourself. And that's what John was telling the leaders of this church, this elect lady, that they were to look over these children. They were to protect them from these false teachers. And why? So that they wouldn't lose the things that they had worked for. Now, this is not talking about salvation, We know that because salvation is not something that we work for. It's a gift of grace. And salvation is not a reward. It's a gift, right? And and so this is not talking about salvation at all. But rather, this is warning us because we have an enemy out there who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy the work of God. John doesn't want us to lose the things that we've worked for. And he's talking about this church, this family, these believers And think about the many things that they had already labored in. Blood, sweat, and tears, right? That had gone into their faith to to grow and to work. You know, the the callings that God had placed, these believers that had been saved out of of error and that God was doing such a great work in their life. They had sacrificed their life to, to make sure that these believers were being raised up and that God would minister. And that if they would take their guard off, if they would not keep sight on this, there's a possibility that they could actually lose the very things that they had spent their life working for. John wanted them to finish strong. And the way that they finished strong was by looking after what God had entrusted them to look over as um, these shepherds. So we need to beware. We do have an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. It could be through sin. It could be through false teaching. It could be through a teaching that kind of creeps in and And rather than keeping our focus on the scriptures, it takes our focus off and gets us spun out in some area where where God doesn't want us, right? And so we need to keep our focus on these. Look after yourself in this way. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So there's a line that truth draws in the sand. And John said, if anyone transgresses, in this way, in this doctrine, then they're a false teacher. Transgress means to overstep, to, to go beyond an established line. And so once again, there was an established truth, the gospel, and there was foundational doctrines that made that gospel possible. And these guys were rejecting the deity and the humanity of Christ. And John said, if they step over that line, test them in their faith, 
they step over it, well, then they're a false teacher. They're not born again, and you shouldn't listen to them. Verse 10, and if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, the churches of the first century were homes because there was no large buildings. They didn't just go out and rent a building. There were synagogues, and then eventually the church would be kicked out of there because they were preaching the truth. And they were like, okay, you can't meet in here anymore. We're going to stone you. So the believers began meeting in homes, right, as they would, would have these churches. And God would raise up pastors, and there would be probably many churches in a town. Now, the church had a mission and, and, and these believers, these prophets and these teachers would go from different towns, town to town, and they wouldn't stay at the local hotel, but they would come to the believers' houses where the church met, and they would, the, the church would receive them, and they would give them a chance to be able to use their gift, like prophets, like Agabus and those guys, right? And then they would help them in their ministry and encourage them and bless them and send them on their way. And that's what John is, is talking about here. He said, hey, if you've got a teacher that shows up to your assembly, your church, or maybe even your house, and they're teaching this doctrine, this, this teaching that's against what the apostles have laid down, he said, don't receive him into your house and don't even greet him. Hey, blessings on you. Hey, brother, I'm so glad that you're doing such a good work for the Lord. John said, no, don't greet him because you're sharing in his work if you do that. Now, of course, we have this today with these different cults that come to your door right? And the Bible says we shouldn't bless them because they're not doing the work of the Lord. They're actually out deceiving people. The Jehovah's Witness believe that he's, Jesus is Michael the archangel and that his body was destroyed after he died. He didn't raise in a physical body. The Mormons actually believe that he's the brother of Lucifer. He was created by God and his spirit wife on the planet of Kolob. That's what the Mormons believe. And they believe that one day you'll be a god if you're married in the Mormon temple with your wife and you'll have your own planet and you'll populate that planet just as the eternal father did with his children. And one of those were Jesus. And so that's the teachings of these guys that are coming to your house with these nice little badges, right? But John says, don't bless them and, and don't greet them, but rather just say, hey, I'm a Christian and here's what the Bible teaches. And, and, and I don't want your magazine. I don't want your truth. And if you want to talk more about it, then I'm happy to talk to you about it. But you know, um, but we don't greet them or, or encourage them in their work, as, as John says here. Now, sixth and finally, in verses 12 and 13, uh, we see that, uh, we see how truth is communicated. And when truth is communicated, it brings the fullness of joy. Verse 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face that our joy may be full. So John had a lot of things that he wanted to write to them. and showed, It shows here that, that he had to dial in his message here. The Holy Spirit wasn't leading him to say everything, but he had a specific message that he was communicating. Same thing with the Gospels. They didn't write everything about the life of Jesus because they had a specific message that they were trying to accomplish and communicate to the believers. But John said that he did want to come to them, hopefully, and be able to speak to them face-to-face, that they're uh, face-to-face so they're joy may be full. Now, I'm told that the word paper is papyrus, and the word ink means black. It was a mixture of charcoal, water, and gum resin. So, you know, he was writing this letter on this paper here, and, he, and someone was going to carry it to this church, but he really wanted to come to them and talk to them face-to-face. Whether God used this inspired letter or whether God was using believers who had heard John to come and to minister to these believers, the communication of the truth is the way that we bring the fullness of joy to to believers' life. 
This is what Jesus' desire was because John heard this from him. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. John 16, 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, that your joy may be full. 1 John 1, 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so John said, What did Jesus want? He wanted you full of joy. And so therefore, what did John want? He wanted you full of joy. And he said, The way that you're full of joy is by consuming your life in the truth, whether it's in the word or whether it's ministering one to another through communication, praying for one another, praying to the Father and asking him to work, that he would reveal himself in mighty ways. This is how we grow in the truth. Finally, verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Who the children of the elect sister were and who the elect sister is, we don't know for sure, but we do know that they could know the truth that John was presenting to them. So in closing, we have a king and he's the king of truth. He came to establish truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And God revealed his words through him. He's given us the faith, the gospel. And when we believe that, he places his spirit of truth in us. As we walk in the spirit, God will lead us into truth by loving each other, by keeping his commandments, and by doing practical works to build up the body. God is continuing to use us to minister to others, both in the body and out of the body so that believers can have the fullness of joy. Amen?